Hello, everyone, and welcome to Season 2 of Mandatory Fun, a podcast about the life of a military wife. I'm Erin Stevens, and this podcast is coming to you from 7,000 feet above sea level, higher than before. That's right, we've moved, or as you know from listening to previous episodes, PCS. I've lost my Mandatory Fun notebook, so I'm back to flying by the seat of my pants. Gotta love moving. It has been a while since we last spoke, and boy, has a lot happened in the meantime. This episode will be dedicated to the largest event that has occurred, as it is the reason for everything else. As the military spouse of a pilot, my biggest concern is generally what you would imagine, my husband being in a plane crash. Well, guess what? It happened. Part of the reason I hadn't recorded in a while was because this is the topic that was taking up the most space in our lives, and I couldn't really discuss it until all of the investigations had been done and dusted. As of about a week ago, the final report came out, So now I'm free to talk about it, but mostly as it relates to my story and my perspective. So let's start at the beginning. It was a day in March, around 2 o'clock, and all of a sudden my phone rang, so nothing out of the ordinary. My husband was on the line, and he said, I'm fine, everything's fine, I was in a plane crash, but I'm okay. You can't talk to anybody, you can't tell anybody, so I'll call you back later. So I hung up the phone and I thought about it for a minute and then I promptly called him back and said, wait a second, hold on. Were you flying with anybody else? Was anybody else involved? Are you hurt? What's next? What am I supposed to do? And as you can imagine, he was a little bit flustered. He said that um, he was okay, but his back hurt. The person that he was flying with was totally fine. They didn't crash into any houses, so there were no injuries, but um, he was okay. So we hung up the phone, and probably about an hour or so later, I got a call from his commander who, you know, kind of talked me through the next steps. Then about an hour after that, um, the commander's wife, Rachel, who was amazing, called me and said, you know, is there anything that you need? Do you need me to help you in any way? And I said, no, my kids are coming home from school soon, so I guess I'm just going to kind of treat it as a day as usual because I didn't want to scare them, and they didn't really under, wouldn't have understood what was going on because I barely understood what was going on. Uh, she asked if I needed her to come over and watch the kids or help me with anything, and I said, no, I'm going to take them to jujitsu this evening because that's what we would normally do, so, you know, I'd be fine. Um, and about 15 minutes later, there was a knock on my door, and she came anyway and said, I'm coming with you to jujitsu. I'm going to drive you there, and then we'll work it out from there. So this whole time after this happened, it wasn't made public right away, but um, news... Uh, our news outlets, started to get wind of it. They didn't have any names, and they didn't have a lot of information, but they knew that there was a crash. They knew where it was. They knew the kind of plane, all of that sort of stuff. So it became out. It came out into the public before anybody in the squadron was told, the guys or the girls, the spouses or the people who were active duty. So there was a little bit of fear because the spouses heard that there was something going on in the news, but nobody knew who it had happened to, and I wasn't allowed to say anything. So that was kind of an interesting little dynamic. And then once it came out and all the spouses were told, I started to get all sorts of phone calls, making sure that I was okay, asking if I needed anything. And it was really kind of amazing. So, you know, the, one of the main takeaways from this whole thing is just what a community it really is. And I know I've talked about this on the podcast before, but it's so true. People rallied 
instantly. People that I hadn't talked to in a while, people that weren't necessarily my closest circle of friends, all asked how they could help, what I needed, if I needed help with kids, if I needed people to cook food, everything. And, you know, at this point, I was like, no, I don't know what I need yet, so I'm okay. But my friend Rachel, as I mentioned before, came over and helped me and drove me to base. And I didn't want the girls to come with me. I didn't know exactly what I'd be seeing when I got there. So my friend Liz came over and watched the girls. Like, no no question about it. No hesitation. Just came over and helped me out, which was really kind of amazing. Um, so the next part. I get to base. Oh, before I move on, I should also mention that my friend Rena, I should give a shout out to her. She brought out all of her stuff for her husband that had been injured in the past. So she just kind of kept bringing over things for people who had to sit in bed for a long time. So that was really great of her as well. And there was really a concern Air Force wide. I mean, people who started to hear the story, people who my husband had flown with before, spouses who we had been stationed with before, all started reaching out, all started sending messages. It was kind of incredible. So Let's talk a little bit about the crash itself. I'm not going to get too deep into it because, honestly, I'm not a pilot and I don't know that much. But what I can say is that um, it was some sort of failure in the propeller that caused the crash. And at the time, my husband didn't know exactly what had happened because it wasn't something that he had learned about previously. So he did everything that he possibly could. And it was only about three to five minutes between the time that he noticed that something was wrong and the plane went down. So they both had to eject from the airplane. He was with one other pilot who was a student in the airplane. He was the instructor at the time. And um, they both had to eject and they both ended up in trees. So (laughs) that was not great, but they were okay. The problem is when Jake ejected, when you pull that kind of seat handle that pulls the ejection seat out of the plane, which the ejection seat is attached to like a rocket booster. So it's pretty crazy how many G's they pull and how how high the force is on your body when you pull. Um, he was a little bit hunched over, so he instantly hurt himself at that point. He didn't hurt himself when he landed. He hurt himself at the point of ejection. So they crashed. They landed in the trees, kind of in a rural area of Georgia, and all the people that lived in the neighborhood started to come over to make sure that they were okay. A plane had just crashed in their neighborhood, so it was not such an ordinary thing. Um, and all the people that came, you know, they they called the ambulance to come. They called 911. They made sure that everything was okay. Um, my husband called the squadron to tell them what had happened to make sh- to check in and make sure that they knew what was going on and that they were okay. Uh, and then, you know, A-10s kind of came out to survey the scene to start checking to make sure that where the debris was, that everybody was okay, that everything was taken care of. So all of those things kind of started happening. But he and his student were taken to a local regional medical center for treatment to assess what had happened to them. So he called me from there when he got there and he said that the flight medicine doctors had called the hospital, the regional medical center, and they wanted to take them back to the base. So at this point, you know, my husband had just been in a plane crash and his back was hurting. And when the doctors who were supposed to be looking out for you say, we're going to come get you, then you just kind of go along with it. They the regional medical center wanted to do a CT scan. They wanted to do x-rays. They wanted to do all of these things. But the priority of the Air Force became making sure that nobody that came in contact with the plane that day 
uh, tested positive for drugs or alcohol, which is understandable. However, we have come to find out that in other air forces, such as the Royal Air Force in England, if there is a plane crash and a pilot ejects, the first thing that happens is protocol that the pilot get a CT scan. So my husband did not get a CT scan. Instead, he got transported um, by ambulance from the regional medical center back to the base, which didn't really have any services for him. So he wasn't put in a neck brace. He wasn't put on a backboard, even though he was complaining about his back hurting. And no, and these people, the flight medicine doctors, knowing that the most common injury is a compression fracture of your spine when you eject from an airplane. So he got to the base, and they did x-rays, and they kind of rolled him around and moved him from side to side. And he was saying that it hurt, but they were like, yeah, it's okay. You'll be fine. Just you know, suck it up or whatever they said to him. So at the time that I got there at about 8 o'clock p.m. to base, he was walking towards me, and he was walking really slow, and he just seemed to be in a lot of pain. He seemed to be really uncomfortable. He had a big cut on his arm from where the glass had shattered from the canopy and cut him. And, I, I mean, you know, you listen to what the doctors say. So the doctor came out and talked to me, and I said, well, what can I do? What should I expect? What are, what's next? And she said, you know, he just needs to stay loose, he needs to walk around. He needs to make sure that he's not staying in one spot because then he'll get even more tight. You know, the x-rays didn't show anything, so he's fine. Go home. Here's some Motrin. Be gone with you. So Jake woke up the next morning, and he was really uncomfortable, but he walked the dog, and he just did some stretches on the floor, and then he went to work. And he was sitting at work, and he was really uncomfortable, and everybody at work was like, go home. Why are, why are you here? So he came back home. So this was on, the, the crash happened on a Monday, so this was on Tuesday. So that day, uh, they called him to tell him that they sent his x-rays to be re-examined in San Antonio because they have better, um, a, more of an ability to see things in a more detailed way, and they have better people who are more experienced in, you know, techs that can read the x-rays better, radiologists. And at that point, they realized that he had a, compression fracture in his spine. So they said, you know, just continue with what you've been doing. It should heal, you know, no harm, no foul. Just, yeah, it's going to hurt for a little while. Um, but we want you to get a CT scan. So this was on a Tuesday. He didn't get the CT scan till Friday. So throughout the week, he was going into work a couple hours every day, still trying to stay loose, rolling his back out on the floor, doing all of these things, these things that they told the doctors told him to do. Um, and he went and got a CT scan on Friday morning around 10 o'clock a.m. And then at 1 o'clock p.m., he got a frantic phone call saying that he needed emergency spinal surgery, that he had a burst fracture in his T12, and it was way worse than they thought or imagined. And he needed to go to Jacksonville, which was two and a half hours away, to have surgery that evening. Mind you, we lived in Valdosta, Georgia. We have two kids and a dog, and Jacksonville is two and a half hours away. So he was panicking. I started calling people to see if I could find somebody to watch the girls, if I could find somebody to watch our dog. And, of course, people rallied and said they would help. 
Then he got a call back about 45 minutes later that said that the spinal surgeon just wanted him to come on Monday so that he could examine him. He wanted him to take it easy all weekend. He needed to go get a back brace. He needed to lay down and not move anymore until he was seen. So that's what he did. All weekend, he laid on the couch, and he didn't move, and he, we went and got him a back brace that you know stabilized his back and immobilized him so that he couldn't move, he couldn't bend. And on Monday, we went to Jacksonville. So we saw this spinal surgeon who examined him and said, you are incredibly lucky not to be paralyzed. You have a burst fracture, which means that fragments of your bone kind of separated from your spine and it could have pierced your spinal column and actually got pretty close to piercing your spinal column. Uh, they did some more x-rays and they said, he said, you know, I, I want you to get a second opinion because I am not... Uh, I've never seen this before. I've never seen somebody who's ejected. I'm not used to working with people from the Air Force, and I don't want to do something that would ruin your career. Your back seems to be stable since you've gone a whole week without having an issue. So for now, I just want you to wear the back brace and get a second opinion. So my husband called to get um, approval for a second opinion, and he was actually given a pretty hard time about it. They didn't want him to get a second opinion. They felt like one was good enough, even though this was just his spine that he was talking about, from an injury that he sustained from work, from flying airplanes that, you know, wasn't his fault. But anyway, so he fought, pushed back a little bit harder, and he got a second opinion. He went back down to Jacksonville to a second spinal surgeon who, again, stressed how incredibly lucky he was to not be paralyzed and said, you know, we can do surgery. It's a major surgery. We can put a rod in your spine, and then we remove it later, or it might have to stay. But, you know, it's a huge thing, and your back has proven to be stable, so I think what you need to do is just wear this back brace for three months. So he wrote him a prescription for a better back brace, and Jake went and got the back brace, and that was that. But during this whole time, an investigation had already been started into the safety of the crash. So I've learned that they do a safety investigation first to find um, the cause of the crash and try to make it so that it never happens again. So it's a teaching tool. It never gets released to the public. And then they do an accident investigation afterwards. So that kind of is the one that's released to the public. That's the one that just got released about a week or two ago that kind of um, finds fault and you know, goes more into detail about what exactly happened so that if there is something or someone to blame, that's the point that that happens. So um, the safety investigation was currently going on, and there are a lot of people on the investigation board, and one of the people on the board is a doctor. So Jake went in to talk to the board, as the pilots do when they're involved in a crash, and he just kind of started to tell them about the things that had happened with his care so far, thus far in the... Um, Air Force, as far as the Air Force was concerned with the crash. And it got taken off the chain because it obviously was not okay. And he got a call from the doctor who had come out to speak with me, trying to ask him if he remembered signing the AMA um, to get out of the regional hospital, which is, you know, just to remind you, where he was taken directly after the crash and where the flight surgeon said that they wanted him to come back to base. So he was told by people who are supposed to have his best interest in heart at heart that they um, were taking him back to base. So he signed the AMA because he figured that was, you know, who he should be listening to. 
So basically, she was trying to place blame on him for signing the AMA, and he was saying he would have never signed the AMA had he not been told. He would have never opted to leave the hospital had he not been told that he was supposed to leave the hospital. So meanwhile, Jake is documenting all of these things just to make sure that he you know, in the future has a record of everything that happened because there was a little bit of negligence on the Air Force's part. And it is extremely frustrating to me that their priorities just seem to be incredibly out of whack when it came to this. He had dedicated at that time 14 years of his life to the Air Force, had deployed three times to Afghanistan, you know, had made countless sacrifices as all of these men and women do that are in the military. And then when it really came down to the point where he needed them to have his back, they didn't. And that should never happen to anybody. And he really honestly doesn't want it to happen to anybody ever again. And if you know my husband, you know that he is not a vindictive person. I mean, he doesn't emote even, so you would never really even know how he was feeling. But he was really angry because he felt like, you know, these are the people who are supposed to be trained to take care of these pilots, and they just completely dropped the ball. And there was really no remorse for it, which was incredibly frustrating. So at this point, he just didn't know what was next for his career. He was taken off of flying status. Obviously, his back was broken. He couldn't really do much for three months. And then he had physical therapy, but he didn't know that he would ever be able to fly again. So then this whole process started, and it was confusing because there's no clear-cut line, you know, kind of determining who decides what happens next. So he had to kind of start asking people who had been in the same position, and he came to find out that he really started to need to find out on his own what was available should he not be able to fly again because the Air Force was obviously going to make a decision for him if he didn't help make one for himself. So about a year after the crash, no, not not quite a year after the crash, probably about eight years, eight months after the crash, he discovered that he would be able to fly again, but he would not be able to fly ejection seat aircraft again. So he really worked hard to get an assignment that he wanted and that his family would be happy with. Um, and we ended up in Colorado Springs, which is where we live now, which is great. So he's not flying right now for the Air Force. He has a non-flying job, but he's okay with it. And, you know, we're all pretty happy to be here. We love Colorado. This is where we wanted to be. So it ended up being okay. But right before we left, he had to take his PT test, which is like their their physical test to show their fitness level. And he when he had when he submitted his paperwork to try to fly again, he had to be taken off of DNIF status. And I don't know that I'm totally right about this, but something happened that said, you know, he's okay, he's doing well health-wise, so you should let this guy fly again in some capacity. So when he went to take the PT test, they said, all right, you're good to go. You know, you take take the whole thing. When you have an issue, you're put on profile to take the PT test. So there might be a part of the test that you can't do. And they just dismiss that piece of the test if it's not healthy for you to do it at that point. But they 
did not do that. So they gave him a hard time because they said, well, wait a second, we took you off profile to be able to, you know, fly again. So you should be able to do this, which the PT test was like a one and a half mile run. And then as many push-ups and sit-ups as you can do in a certain amount of time. Mind you, Jake was told to never do a sit-up again for the rest of his life. So the fact that they were like, nope, you got to do it anyway, kind of pissed him off. But he did it. So he took the PT test. I don't think he did the sit-ups. He did the run and the push-ups, and he actually did really well. He's not the kind of guy that's going to try to get out of a PT test because he actually does pretty well with the PT tests. So that was really also an annoying thing because he had been in a plane crash less than a year before and broken his back. And they were like, sorry, you got to do it anyway. So right now we're one year after the crash. And the takeaways are... He has made an amazing recovery. I mean, amazing. The reason that I personally think he did so well in his recovery is because he had just gotten back from a deployment and he was in really good shape. His core was really strong. So when he crashed and he ejected, you know, his body was able to recover really quickly because he was strong. If he had not been in good shape or he had been really overweight, it probably would have been a different story. But, you know, he's skiing, we're putting a patio in our backyard, he's back to running again, so it's kind of incredible. Um, We've also moved to a place that we wanted to live, which is really nice. It wasn't necessarily going to work out this way, and nobody actually thought it would work out this way, but the Air Force kind of got it right, although he did help himself a lot when it came to trying to get this assignment There's still a little bit of uncertainty about the future, what would be next. This is a three-year assignment. He'll have two, a little over two years left when this is done. So he doesn't know what they're going to want him to do because he's still technically a fighter pilot. He's classified as a fighter pilot even though he can't fly fighters. So he's still trying to figure out what that means for what comes next in his career. But he is currently just finished, actually, getting his... um, recertification for um, a private pilot's license. He did a couple of check rides and he got checked out to fly again. So even though it's just for pleasure and he's just doing it on his own to get back up in the air and to try to stay current, you know, he's back to flying again, which is pretty amazing because if it were me, there's no way I'd ever get back in an airplane. So anyway, that's the story. It's a crazy one. Needless to say, my fear of flying has gotten worse, and that includes my fear of loved ones flying as well, unfortunately. When he goes to fly for these check rides and he goes to fly on his own, I definitely am not at ease in any way, and I make him call me before and after he takes off and lands. So I'm hoping that it gets better over time, but knowing myself, it's probably not very likely. He insists that if I just learned to fly myself, then it would help, to which I say, never going to happen. I may not be the next Amelia Earhart, but I just may be the next person on your flight vomiting and gripping the armrests for dear life. Next time, I'll fill you in on how this move went. Spoiler alert, it was not very smooth. Now, something to make you laugh. I usually link the theme of the episode with a joke, but there's not a ton of funny jokes out, out there about plane crashes, so I'll just tell you my favorite joke of the moment. Why do they put barcodes on Navy ships in Norway? Give up? So that when they come back into port, they can just Scandinavian. So you know you love it. On that note, this is Aaron signing off. 
May you never have to experience any type of horrible accident and may your life be full of mandatory fun. Thank you.